Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Walner. This is episode four of Call Me Shelley, The Mysterious Disappearance of Michelle Julson. If you've not listened to previous episodes, this one might be a little tough to follow. We won't be doing extensive recapping in this episode. You'll want to go back and listen to one, two, and three if you've not listened to those episodes. In this episode, we'll hear from a friend of Shelley's and a retired investigator, Bill Connor, who worked this case from 2005 to 2010. Also coming up, I finally spoke with one of the four railroad workers mentioned in Shelley's cold case file. Welcome to episode four. How would you get abducted from 140 American to 300 block East Broadway without somebody seeing it on a Tuesday afternoon? I think something happened to her. I think somebody took her. Okay. Here we are. Oh, right there. Oh, cool. And then there's a car there. What do you think the odds are that she lives here still? So? I'd say it's about 50. Okay. It was a long time ago, right? Yeah. The voices you are hearing are those of myself and a colleague of mine, Jeremy Turley. Jeremy is a Bismarck-based reporter for Forum News Service, and not to be confused with Jeremy Fugelberg, who you've heard previously on Dakota Spotlight. On this afternoon, Jeremy Turley has agreed to assist me in knocking on a few doors in Bismarck, and hopefully to ask some questions about the Shelley Julson case. We wanted to speak with Jenny, former barmaid at Burnt Creek Club. Shelley's friends told investigators in 1994 that she suspected Jenny might be the person responsible for some of the harassing phone calls to her home. Shelley's car had also been keyed and someone had followed her home from Burnt Creek Club a couple of times. I also learned something new from Shelley's parents, Wes and Linda. Shelley told them once that there'd been a car driving through her trailer court with a woman yelling out the window, something like, leave him alone. And Wes Jilson told me that Shelley had gotten a couple of flat tires once, both on the same side of the car. He couldn't prove that someone had vandalized the car, of course, but in hindsight, he certainly wonders if that might not have been the case. Jeremy Turley and I approach a very well-kept home in Bismarck. Well manicured. Oh, very. That is an immaculate lawn. Should be noted there are no cars outside in the driveway. Oh, this is the pad. You're right. She's not home. I was looking at the car that belongs to the... Shoot. Nobody was home that day, but I knew I'd be returning to try again. As it would turn out, it would take several attempts before I would get to speak with Jenny. Meanwhile, let me introduce you to one of Shelley's closest friends, Larry Helfenstein. Larry and Shelley grew up in the town of Center, North Dakota, about 40 miles from Bismarck. They met in the first grade. Larry told me that Shelley was like a sister to him. Shelley and I have always been um, able to talk to each other about anything. 
And any time of the night, whenever, I would do anything for her. She would do anything for me. Shelly was carefree. She liked to have fun, a good friend. We were always pretty close through all the years that we've known each other, up until she disappeared. I asked Larry if he thought there might be some possibility that Shelly just ran away and abandoned her old life. Larry told me, absolutely not. And he recalled a conversation he had with Shelly when she learned that she was pregnant. And she let me know that being a mom was going to be the most important thing in her life and that she was going to make it the best thing that she could be. And when she had Jaden, she put all of her effort into Jaden. I mean, she was making sure that everything was taken care of for him. Um, he had trouble with his feet and she made sure that he had, you know, the medical that was taken care of. They straightened out his feet. I mean, it was just her world. Every time she talked about him, that was her world. You'll likely recall that Tony Holm said that Shelley called him on that early Monday morning, August 1st, about 36 hours before she went missing. Larry also remembers getting a call from Shelley that night. And my girlfriend at the time answered the phone when Shelly had called. Shelly wanted to talk to me and I was sleeping that night. And I, to this day, I kicked myself. I wish I would have been awake. Like, what did she have to tell me that night? Just like Shelly's father, just like Bismarck police officers, Larry is one of the people who went looking for Shelly after she fell off the radar. I would drive around town looking for her car thinking of places that she might be hanging out if, you know, she was in trouble or whatever it is. Just trying to think of different things. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. I wanted to get Larry's insight and perspective on the men in Shelley's life. I started by asking him about Tony. So Tony and her were dating, and he was the bartender at the Burt Creek, I believe. And I never did meet him. And Tony had cheated on her, and she broke off the relationship. And so Tony would be showing up at her place in the middle of the night crying that he wanted her back. Larry recalls that Shelley called him once when Tony was outside her trailer in a rainstorm. She calls me and it's pouring outside and he's standing outside in the rain, drunk, crying. He wants her back and his life wasn't worth living anymore because she's not there. I mean, he was kind of a mess at that time. So, and I said, you need to call the police and you need to get yourself a protection order. Shelley did not follow Larry's advice that time. There's no indication that there was any kind of protection order in place. And this, despite the harassment she said she was experiencing at the Burnt Creek Club. Tony was friends with a bunch of guys that were there. And I don't recall if any of them were a police officer. But I know that she was harassed by multiple people. She said that Tony 
would have them go and harass her and call her those names. I asked Larry if he knew anything about Shelley's car getting vandalized and Shelley's suspicions about who was behind it. Tony apparently had this female friend that he said was platonic, and that's who Shelley caught them together, in what she told me. So that might have been her. And Tony really, it was, he kind of explained to her that it was a, it was a one-time thing. It wasn't anything serious and it just happened. And yeah, Shelly was not going to be having that. And what about Kevin Woodworth? I asked. I I, I never met the guy. Only from things that Shelly told me about him. Shelly and I were more, we were platonic friends. To me, she was more like my sister. So Shelly and I had gone out one night and she had asked Kevin if he would watch Jaden. And Kevin said he had no problems with it. And afterwards, when Shelly, we went, we stopped by to pick up Jaden, he was like after her, like about me. And it was almost like a jealousy thing. And they weren't together. There was no relationship there at that time. So he was really angry and upset about things. Um, I know that she would have difficulty at times when, because his dad, I believe, was watching Jaden. Well, Shelly worked sometimes. And she would have trouble with Kevin. In regards to the alleged sighting of Shelly at WeFest, when Larry learned that a woman named Amy over in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, claimed to have seen Shelly, talked to Shelly, claimed to have known Shelly for six years, Larry didn't really buy it, not even back then. Like I said, I've known Shelly since first grade. And I was like, where did they get this person? Because I do not know any person that Shelly would have known in this area. I mean, I know most of her acquaintances. There was probably some people that I didn't know, but I heard their names. I knew their names. I don't know where that came from. That was just strange where that came out of the blue. And people kind of took that as the gospel. One person who would not just take Amy's story as gospel is Detective Bill Connor when he began reinvestigating the case in 2005. Connor did his best to get down to the very bottom of the Wee Fest signing. He put a lot of work into it. I interviewed Bill Connor recently. We met at the old location of the Comfort Inn. We sat down at a table just outside the entrance of the lounge, within sight of the spot where Shelley's car was found. And because we sat outside, there is some background noise from delivery vehicles and so on, but it's not too bad. I was asked to uh, update or take a look at all of our missing person cases and see if I could update them and uh, do any work on them and kind of organize them because the state was also looking to put a... um, uh, file together or whatever, and all the state's missing people, so there was a kind of a, a repository. Connor began working on the case in 2005. He started out by getting familiar with the file, speaking with Shelley's parents, and collecting DNA from them. This DNA would be used to see if Shelley's DNA had been entered into any Jane Doe databases. Later that summer, 2005, Connor learned something interesting and a bit surprising. The Wee Fest sighting had been in the news back in 1994. So in 2005, if Detective Bill Connor was to ask some random Bismarck resident if they recalled the Shelley Juleson case, 
it would be no big surprise to him if they said something like, yeah, I think she was located alive in Minnesota or something like that. But what did surprise him somewhat was that Shelley's own son, Jaden, who was now 14 years of age, also seemed to be under the impression that his mother was alive and well in Minnesota. My feeling is that's what he was told by my, my gut feeling was by Kevin or maybe even his whole family. So, learning that Jaden believed his mother was alive in Minnesota, Connor followed up on it. Because there was no evidence of, or indication that she's alive and well in Minnesota. That's why I ran her fingerprints through APHIS. And, you know, if she'd ever been arrested or ever had a traffic, uh, not a traffic ticket, but any place where she would have been fingerprinted, they would have shown up. I also did a financial check on her, too, but... That came back negative, too. You'll recall that a woman named Amy told investigators in 94 that she'd partied with Shelley at WeFest. She was the last person, basically, who had said she'd seen her. And so I wanted to re-interview her again. Back in 1994, when Amy was interviewed by Detective Walls, she said she had worked with Shelley in gaming. But it's important to note that a lot about Shelley's personal life had been blasted out in the media. You didn't necessarily have to be a friend of Shelley's to know she worked in gaming, or that she had a son she dropped off at the grandfather's, that she never picked up her paycheck, and so on. And all that was all over the media at the time. It was everywhere. And um, it kind of threw everything in a, all kinds of directions. Wes Jolson was traveling all over the place, putting posters up in truck stops and every place else. Connor started by simply asking one question. Did Amy Sandsburn actually work in gaming? That seemed like a good place to start establishing Amy's credibility. I thought, well, that's easy to check on. So I called North Dakota to see if she, the state, if she had ever been, uh, had a license to do gaming. I knew Michelle did. That's what she did for a living. And uh, no, no, Amy, she had never had a license to do gaming in the state of North Dakota. Amy didn't. So then I thought, well, maybe Michelle had one from Minnesota. So I called her folks and I said, did she ever do gaming in Minnesota? And and, uh, Michelle's folks said they weren't positive, but they did not believe she did. And I said, did she ever mention a friend named Amy? And they said, no, not to what we, in our knowledge. So then I called the state of Minnesota to see if Amy Sandsburn had ever had a license to do gaming in Minnesota and Michelle Jolson. Neither one of them had a license in Minnesota. Michelle had it in North Dakota, but that was it. Connor figured he should travel out to Minnesota and talk to Amy these 10 years later, see if her story was the same or if he could learn something new. I traveled out there with the Agent Schleipzig from FBI, and uh, we interviewed her, and, you know, she changed her story. I don't remember exactly now what her story was, but it was more like it looked like her. And Ten years later, Amy is no longer 100% certain it was Shelley. In fact, she tells Connor she never even spoke with law enforcement back then. She only spoke to Shelley's dad, she says which is a statement that can be easily disproved. It's all in black and white in Wall's police reports. But ten years later, Amy says, no, I never talked to the police about this. She also doesn't remember a guy named Tom or anything about a black pickup truck. In 1994, Amy said she spoke to Shelley on the phone after WeFest. In 2005, she said she never spoke to Amy on the phone at all. 
In 94, Amy said she was good friends with Shelley. In 05, she says she didn't know Shelley at all, really. Detective Connor pointed out to Amy that in 1994, she told investigators that she had taken a walk with Shelley and, quote, talked about life, unquote. But now Amy says, no, that never happened either. You know, so forth. And she named several other people that they had been partying with at WeFest. So Detective Connor went and spoke to a couple of those people. He's, he just kind of laughed and he says, I don't know what she's talking about. And she said that, I think Amy was driving, or Amy said that this guy was driving in the car, and he says, well, I know that's a bunch of, of um, crap, basically, in so many words, because he says, when I used to go to those things, I'd get so stoned and wrecked that there's no way I'd drive. My wife drove. I, I didn't believe anything she said after that, you know, but it was after, especially after I talked to the sister. Amy's sister basically told Detective Connor that he shouldn't believe anything, Amy said. Amy likes attention, she said. In fact, literally, she told him, Mr. Connor, you have been lied to. I think Amy saw this poster and it was a way to get some attention. I told Bill Connor that from what I could see in the police report, this sighting at WeFest really took attention away from other leads. Things like railroad workers, Rick Snell, Kevin Woodworth, and his father, Richard. I asked him what he thought this WeFest rabbit hole did to the whole Shelley investigation. I personally think it shut it down completely. You know, I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I can armchair quarterback it pretty easily looking on it from Monday morning. But, you know, what they thought at the time was that she went to WeFest, didn't want to be a mom no more, wanted to party and hang out. You know, she was young and had this child at a pretty young age and uh, wanted to just party. That's what the thought was. Bill Connor does acknowledge that he cannot prove that Shelley Jilson was not at WeFest, but from what he was able to gather, Amy Sandsburn's account is not credible. Investigators in 1994 simply didn't have much reason to think that a random person would just invent a sighting like that. And, you know, to those investigators' um, credit, too, they, you know, we hadn't had anything like this. You know, at, at that time, I was a patrolman. I was actually on duty when she went missing. I remember Rob Carvel taking the original report, Officer Carvel, and I remember we were supposed to be looking for this car, Shelley's car, found at the Comfort Inn. This part of the case is obviously a vital and important aspect of this unsolved riddle. Did Shelley park her car there herself, perhaps on that very Tuesday, August 2nd? Or did perhaps someone else park it there a day or days later? Bill Connor feels strongly, quite confidently actually, that Shelley's car could not have been at the Comfort Inn for the full six days from Tuesday to Monday. I asked him why he felt so confident about this. Well, I feel that strongly because at that time, I thought at that time that that was a very nice car. I really liked that car. And I was pretty good at finding stolen vehicles. And I mean, I found a lot of them in my time. And so I was always looking. And I went through this lot, I don't know how many times at night. You know, when I was just cruising, I'd just cruise through the lot, put the, you know, leave the car in gear and just idle through the lot and look at cars and run some plates here and there. And I was specifically looking for that car because we were told that's what she was missing. She was missing driving. And I liked that particular body style. I was very familiar with it. 
You know, as far as the car not being processed, well, she went to, you know, the investigators figure she went to WeFest and wants to be gone, and that's all that's to it. You know, now nowadays, you know, we have DNA. You know, we could have possibly gotten some DNA out of that car other than hers, and maybe we would have found something. There was supposedly a half-eaten, like, filling station sandwich on the floorboards. Um, maybe could have got some DNA off of that, found out who was eating it. You know, but uh, you know, those are things that way after the fact, you know, that weren't available to us in 1994. I asked Bill Connor about the police report that Julie Thompson filed when the car was discovered. She said it looked like the car had been there, quote, a while. That, you know, it's dusty around here all the time. I mean, if your vehicle sits for any time or you drive on a gravel road, it's going to get dusty. You know, so... I just personally didn't think it was here that whole time. And I, I, I thought also that with that Snell business, that's about the time he got his check, the car was located here. Bill is talking about Rick Snell, who didn't come back to work on August 3rd, then resurfaced on August 9th. Remember, Rick Snell worked at Great Lines, really just a stone's throw from the Burnt Creek Club. Snell's employer told investigators in 94 that Rick called into work on August 9th to ask for his check. That's the day after Shelley's car was discovered. Bill Connor put a lot of work into the Rick Snell angle. The following, narrated by a colleague of mine, is one of Connor's first notations about Snell. I decided to run a criminal history check on Richard Snell. Mr. Snell had a background of domestic violence, including choking his wife and pouring antifreeze in her eyes. There were several convictions for domestic assault in his background. He was currently on supervised release for criminal sexual conduct in Minnesota. By looking at the old police department reports, I learned his wife at the time was Jody Snell. And so Bill Connor starts looking even closer at Rick Snell. To read Connor's reports on Rick Snell is a bit exciting, but also frustrating. While following his investigation, I often felt that he was just at the brink of connecting Shelley with Rick Snell. Two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, and so on. It seems close. It feels close. And then the trail cools again. He was just a person of interest, really. And I just found circumstantial things that had just intrigued me there. Here are some of the circumstances. As I said, Rick Snell worked very close to Burnt Creek Club, where Shelley dealt blackjack. So Bill Connor put a lot of work into exploring if Shelley Juleson and Rick Snell had ever met. Could he draw a line between them? For example, Detective Connor spent a lot of time on the phone tracking down people who worked at the Burnt Creek Club in 94. Once he located them, he met with them, showed them a photo of Rick Snell. Do you recognize this guy? He asked them. Most didn't. Some recognized his name, maybe. Wasn't he on our bad checks list at the Burnt Creek Club? But nobody at Burnt Creek recalled seeing Shelley Juleson with the guy in the photo. Connor also spoke with Rick Snell's co-workers and crew bosses at Great Lines. One guy named Mark did specifically remember Rick Snell going to the Burnt Creek Club. One step forward, Rick Snell was at the Burnt Creek Club. He could have met Shelley. But when Connor shows Mark and other Great Line employees photos of Shelley, nobody recognizes her or remembers her in the company of Rick Snell. He also shows them photos of the Ford Thunderbird. You ever see Rick Snell in this car? Getting a ride in this car? Nobody at Great Lines was able to connect those dots. 
one step back again. But then this, Connor tracks down and speaks with Rick Snell's ex-wife, Jody. She tells him that Rick and her were separated at the time. I asked her where he liked to drink. She thought about it and said maybe the elbow room because he lived across the street from it. That's right. It turns out that Rick Snell lived across the street from the elbow room in an upstairs apartment. He lived on the west side of Maine and the next block down. So he lived close. He drank. And apparently, Shelley had been telling Tony that she'd recently met someone else. This guy was in the process of getting a divorce. She never told Tony who this guy was. She, it was like she was teasing him, like, I got this boyfriend that I'm just starting to see he's in the process of a divorce. Because I think she really, truly wanted to get back with Tony. Is who she really wanted to get back with. And so it, to her, for her, it seemed like she was playing a game with Tony a little bit to kind of egg him on or maybe get him interested in again or something. Bill Connor reviewed some of the police reports from domestic assault calls to the Snell home, disputes between Rick Snell and his wife before they split up. In one report, there was apparently something about Rick possibly having an affair with another woman. Connor asked Rick Snell's ex-wife about that, wondering if perhaps Shelley's name might come up. I mentioned to her that in one of the domestic violence reports in 1994, she had accused Rick of having an affair. She said she did not remember that particular incident, but accused him of a lot of things back then. I asked her if she'd remembered the names of any of these women he had affairs with. She said no. Bill Connor also spoke with Rick Snell's mother-in-law, Melinda Snell. She said that Rick had been married before and lived in Montana. He got divorced and moved to Arizona, where he met Jody, and they got married. Melinda said she thought Rick and Jody moved to Bismarck in the early 1990s. She said Rick had worked for a TV station, and their life seemed to be going good. She said there were many domestics between Jody and Rick, and things seemed to spiral downhill quickly after they moved here. Melinda thought there was alcohol and drugs involved. I asked her if she had ever seen Rick with other women. She said no. I asked her if she'd ever seen him drive a blue Thunderbird. She said no. She said by the time of Rick's dad's funeral in 2000, Rick was living on the streets. She said they had to go and look for him. They found him, cleaned him up, and he attended the funeral. But then, shortly thereafter, he moved to Minnesota and was accused of molesting someone, which he was convicted of. I asked Melinda if she thought that Rick was capable of murder. She said he is way different than he used to be, and he has mental problems and she's afraid of him. Perhaps you'll remember Robin. Robin worked with Shelley at the Elbow Room downtown. Connor talked to her, too. I showed her the picture of Rick Snell. She immediately remembered it as a customer at the Elbow Room. She said he was a loner. I asked her if she ever saw Michelle and Rick talking or having a drink. She said she did not ever see them together. Connor also re-interviewed several of Shelley's friends and co-workers, the same ones Walls had spoken to back in 94. He showed them photos of Rick Snell, too. Nobody recognized him as someone Shelley ever spoke with. Here is Bill Connor again with his thoughts on Rick Snell. He actually had some real mental issues right after that, too. Not too terribly long after that, he all of a sudden was living on the street, and, you know, it wasn't making much sense about anything. So, And then it wasn't too much longer thereafter that his 
that Snell's wife moved to Minnesota with their kids, and that's when he got into trouble there with some kind of sexual charge. I asked Bill Connor if he ever spoke to Rick Snell. No, I talked to um, his parole officer, and he was paroled to a group home, and it was for uh, mental issues. And he says that I could interview him, but I probably wouldn't get anywhere with it because of his mental issue, mental state. Another thing that intrigued me about that was he did some, she did gaming over at Midway Lanes also, and he got a DUI outside of Midway Lanes. We mentioned before the importance of Kevin Woodworth and others having the opportunity to comment on our reporting. Rick Snell deserves this opportunity as well. I finally tracked him down yesterday. He's listed on a sex offender's website in the state of Montana. Rick Snell has not had a chance to respond yet, but we will do our utmost to make contact now. I also want to note that we did run a background check on Rick Snell, and we've confirmed the statements that Bill Connor made about his criminal record in Minnesota. I asked Connor about Richard Woodworth, Kevin's father, who is now deceased. Richard was, after all, the last person to have seen Shelley. See, I never talked to him, and just a short while before I was going to retire, Patrol had some dealings with him. I don't remember what it was, and he was he was calling, you know, and it was obvious, so, looked obvious or sounded obvious to me that he was having some, uh, mental issues or like he's getting senile or something. So I never did talk to him. And Kevin Woodworth, what about him? Bill Connor talked a lot about what opportunity Kevin would have had to commit a crime on that Tuesday when Shelley went missing. Kevin was at work that day. Sure, he was likely working on his own at a job site and could have possibly left for a couple of hours, but Bill didn't think it sounded like the most ideal opportunity to commit a crime like murder. Yeah, I didn't think there was something that really stuck out that he would have left work for a long period of time. Like, you know, if you were going to do a, a crime, murder somebody, and you've got to do something with the body, you're just not going to leave it. So I didn't believe that he was gone that long. Nor does Bill Connor have the feeling that Kevin Woodworth in any way wanted to be a single parent. And i got to say, I get the same feeling when I read the interviews with Kevin. And what about Tony Holm and his new girlfriend and the patrons at the Burnt Creek Club and the harassment towards Shelley? I think Michelle really wanted to have a relationship with Tony. And she had kind of an on, on and off again one earlier with him. And I think it was finally kind of over. But yet he was still talking with her or letting her down easy. One of the two, I don't know. But we're still friends with her anyway. And yeah, this girl might have done those things. I, you know, that part I really didn't get into. Detective Connor never met with Tony during his reinvestigation. He did speak with him on the phone once, though. I asked Tony if he had ever heard from Michelle. He said he had not heard a thing. I asked him what he thought had happened to her. He said he didn't know. I told him I thought she was dead because there was no contact with any family members and no credit history. I told him that I thought she had never gone to WeFest. He said he didn't think she would have gone there because she had never mentioned going there. He then agreed and said she was probably dead. I asked him if he had any idea who might have harmed her. He said he didn't know of anyone. We discussed Michelle's vehicle being found at the Comfort Inn. He said he always thought it was strange the vehicle was there. He said Michelle knew many people in gaming and they would have noticed the vehicle parked there. He said he thought it had been dumped there. 
For Bill Connor, there's one central thought, one central reason why he feels confident that foul play was involved in Shelley's disappearance. And everybody that I've spoke with said that she really would never have abandoned that child. You know, that, that boy was her life. I mean, she, she took good care of him, even though she, you know, she was kind of a younger gal that still wanted to party and so forth, but she, she was very care, caring of, of her son. I'd like to thank Bill Connor for sharing his thoughts and memories on this case. In the beginning of episode one of this season, I mentioned an expression to be a fly on the wall. Now I'm thinking of a different expression, leave no stone unturned. To my knowledge, aside from those 104 pages removed in 1994, I have the full cold case file from Michelle Shelley Juleson. Of course, I could be wrong. Perhaps there is work that was done that, for whatever reason, is not reflected in the many pages I sifted through over and over again. But, based on what I have read, I feel like there are several stones still unturned in this case. Rick Snell, who knows, perhaps he's a long shot. He just happened to not return to work the next day. He just happened to call for his paycheck the day after the car was found. He just happens to have a criminal record. He's on a sex offender's website in Montana, and the background check we pulled on him shows a sexual assault in Minnesota. He just happened to have worked next to the Burnt Creek Club. He frequented the Burnt Creek Club at least once, and he lived next to the Elbow Room. In fact, he was a regular at the Elbow Room, and he got a DUI outside of the bowling alley where Michelle also worked. It's all circumstantial, I understand that, but from what I can gather, he's never been spoken to by law enforcement at all in regards to Shelley's case. He's never been shown a photo of Shelley Juleson and her Ford Thunderbird just to see what he has to say or how he might react. To me, that's a stone unturned. And what about Tony Holm? He left Bismarck three weeks after Shelley disappeared. And Shelley told people that she thought Tony might be behind the harassment she was receiving, either as the orchestrator of it all or as the person carrying it out. She told friends she was concerned Tony might drink too much and harm her. I guess we can't call Tony a stone fully unturned. I mean, he did speak with law enforcement before leaving town. But from what I can see, he hasn't been questioned in person since 1994. To me, that's a stone that needs to be turned over again. One other stone is that of the fourth railroad worker. He was named as a railroad employee that was in Bismarck at the time, but it seemed to me that he had never been spoken to. At least I couldn't find a report on it. But to be honest, I thought, well, he was probably spoken to and someone just didn't file a report or something like that. Two days ago, I finally spoke with him myself. His name is Walter Serensky, and he lives near Fargo, North Dakota. Well... I just really don't know how to respond to you at all, to tell you the truth. I mean, I didn't I didn't know anything about uh, this whole thing until uh, you started uh, sending me stuff about it and reading some of the stories about it, but I don't even remember hearing about the story even back then. And, uh, the hotel would transport us up and back between the railroad yard and Mandan, and they comfort in in their van. So... You know, we were a pretty captive audience right around the general area, around the hotel there, where we would get a, a meal over at Perkins or that, uh, you know, I mean, we were pretty much within walking distance of the hotel. And back then, you know, we didn't, we usually didn't spend a lot of time there. The, uh, you could get called right out on your rest, which was eight hours uh, after you went off duty, you know, 
No, law enforcement, they, nobody ever talked to me about it. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, usually uh, railroad guys are, you know, they're, they're pretty, you know, things kind of spread pretty quick, you know, when something's going on. And I tell you the truth, I never even heard a story about, you know, like that, you know, with this girl or anything like that, even through the guys on, you know, on the, that I worked with. I mean, nobody, nobody ever tried to get a hold of me, you know. And I mean, if they would have wanted to get a hold of me, the railroad service would have certainly, you know, notified me. I'm just surprised that I wouldn't have heard that, you know, kind of floating around with other rails, especially if the if if the police would have questioned any other rails, you know, that would have been something that would have floated around, you know, amongst us or would have heard something about it. And and uh, I just don't remember hearing about it. That's Jeremy Turley and I, again, attempting to track down Jenny, former barmaid at the Burnt Creek Club. That looks like a car that's parked, like not a vehicle you're using every day, because just the way it's parked on the side like that. And I just have a feeling no one's home. We didn't find her that day, but I kept returning to her home, and I did finally speak with her. She wasn't real keen on talking, but she did tell me this. She stated that she was not the person harassing Shelley. I asked her if she knew where Shelley lived back then. She said she did not. I asked her if she had any idea why Shelley might have thought that she was the person responsible for harassing her and keying her car. She told me she had no idea. Still to come in this season, we'll meet Shelley's parents and another retired Bismarck police officer who investigated Shelley's case in 2016. And Dakota Spotlight will continue to do its best to turn over more of the unturned stones of Shelley's case. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, written, researched, and recorded by me, James Walner. Special thanks to my colleagues at Forum Communications for lending us their voices. That's Jim Manny, Trisha Tarinskas, Chris Kurzman, and Jeremy Fugelberg. Music by Wowza in Kalamazoo. You can check them out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on bandcamp.com. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. Once again, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.